Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening. You just heard our excellent producer, Mark Blackwell, introduce the show and me. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. My name brings a lot of teasing. Yes, the founder of Nike is Phil Knight, and no, I'm not him. If I were, I think we would be a bit further down the road to solving hunger than we are. I also get ribbed about being Dr. Phil. I am not the one with the TV show. I'm the one with the radio show. I do have a master's degree in professional counseling, but I don't think I'm a very good counselor, so I don't do it professionally. The doctor in my Dr. Phil comes from my doctorate degree in, are you ready? Religious Science and Philosophy. So yes, with my counseling degree, we can figure out what's bugging you. And with my philosophy degree, we can probably surmise it really doesn't matter. That's a joke. (laughs) I loved learning philosophy, but at times it can be very frustrating. Not just trying to figure out what in the world some of these guys were saying, like Plato, Kant, Nietzsche, Aquinas, Russell, Socrates, Leibniz, Spinoza, Descartes, Aristotle, and my favorite, Kierkegaard, who are all great thinkers, and much of it I can hardly grasp. I studied philosophy for two reasons. I'm convinced philosophy touches every aspect of life. Knowledge, science, ethics, law, values, aesthetics, medical, metaphysical, and yes, political. They are all aspects of philosophy. Secondly, I believe we are all philosophers. Sometimes we just aren't very good ones. We all think, therefore we philosophize. In philosophy, you learn terms, lots of terms. You may wonder if any of this high thinking ever has any real use. It does, and here's an example. One of the terms you learn and a concept that guides me virtually every day of my life is the philosophical concept of being logically consistent. Now, I'm not an OCD person, but I do get really frustrated when ideas, concepts, and in particular, political ideology do not match up with practical reality or stated reasoning. This is the reason I think sometimes we aren't very good at philosophy, because we are logically inconsistent in our thinking and application. How is it that the government can look favorably upon companies and offer benefits to them in the form of tax breaks, which I'm not against, and celebrate them when they take advantage of those benefits, but then look with disdain upon people who are working and take advantage of government assistance in the form of food or child care assistance? This is, to me, logically inconsistent. To be logically consistent, a set of statements must be true at the same time. A set of statements is logically inconsistent if they cannot be true at the same time. I want our philosophy to be logically consistent with our application. To talk more about logical inconsistencies and what to do about them are two of my favorite thinkers. Our co-host, Jerry Brisson, is in the studio, and our friend and my colleague, David Lee, from Feeding Wisconsin, will be our guest today on Food for Thought. 
Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Jerry Brisson in the studio. Jerry, always happy to see you, CEO and president of the Gleaners Community Food Bank and the chair of the Food Bank Council um, Board of Directors. So welcome. You know, I say this all too often, and I'm going to say it again. I am so pumped about this show and our guest today. I think this is going to be a phenomenal conversation. Someone I've known in our network for years who's uh, incredibly smart and capable and hardworking, and I could just keep going. But I'll let you do the intro, Doctor. Well, great. David Lee, the um, executive director for Feeding Wisconsin, which makes David and I counterparts or colleagues, I should say, um, for the Food Bank Council here in Michigan, I serve as the executive director in uh, Wisconsin. It's called Feeding Wisconsin, and we're the state associations representing all the Feeding America food banks in our states. David Lee, welcome to Food for Thought. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And Jerry, that introduction, I thought you guys had somebody else on the call. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, David, uh, let's let's introduce you to our listeners here in Michigan and uh, and on the podcast as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found uh, the opportunity to invest part of your one handful of life in this great work of creating food security. Sure. So, as as um, as you mentioned, I am the executive director of Feeding Wisconsin. Our mission is to help our food banks, our partners, and our stakeholders fight hunger, improve health, and strengthen communities. And for me, the reason why I came to this work and chose very intentionally to, as you said, invest a good portion of my life in, in trying to ensure that everybody has a uh, access to a to a healthy meal is that the problem that we are dealing with, hunger, right, mm-hmm. is imminently solvable. Uh, There's more than enough food, there's more than enough resources, and we just need to figure out how to create efficient distribution systems to get the food or the resources or money or whatever it might be to the folks who are in need. And that is, out of all of the other very intractable social problems, that's what sort of inspires me so much about hunger is that, you know, of all of those problems, we can actually get this one. We can lick this one. Well, I think that there's a, um, a, a, a commonality there because one of the objectives of doing Food for Thought here on WJR is to change that conversation because we feel like that hunger or food security gets lumped into the big multi-layered mess of a problem called poverty when Jerry and I have taken a, a little bit of a different stance to think that not only does poverty cause food insecurity, but food insecurity causes poverty. And if we can pull that problem out, extract it out, as you say, then I think that we can solve that. And we're anxious to find what the number of people that we're serving that once they become food secure can begin to solve the rest of the problems associated with being in poverty themselves because their minds will be free. And I, I, I think that that's the whole point here. And it's, I, I think we had a, like a, uh, a little cheerleading wave here when you said that hunger is solvable. So we're not the only ones in Michigan that believe that. You guys believe that in Wisconsin as well. We absolutely believe it. And I don't know if it's something about the Great Lakes water or something, but yeah, we totally <laughs> believe it. We agree. 
Um, I think the challenge for us, and, and, and this, I've been at this for quite some time now, uh, I think I, the challenge for us is that we have a hard time articulating, and I think this is true across the sector, an end state. What does that end state look like, right? Because I believe that if we don't know what the end is, we will never begin to make the decisions to actually get us to that end, right? So um, how do we sort of articulate our exit strategy? It might not be next year. It might not be in the five, next five years. It might not be in the next 20 or 30 years. But we have to begin to think about what a hunger-free Wisconsin, a hunger-free Michigan actually looks like so that we can begin driving towards those um, those outcomes. And I think what you're saying about how our issue gets sort of pulled into the broader context of poverty and all of the other really bad social problems is that they are really connected, right? And so to sort of, we have to be really disciplined to to articulate what hunger and food insecurity is, the solutions to the problem, and how we get to a hunger-free state. And how we know uh the flexible nature of that statement as well, because even as I think about the time I've been in this work, which is going on 30 years now, um, you know, employment and how it contributes to the end game is a lot different now than it was then. Hmm. And so when we look at 47% of the people we serve are employed, that wasn't true 30 years ago. Um, and so as we think about the safety net and how it works and how it's impacted by the greater aspects of society that the safety net isn't directly responsible for, we have to understand that our solutions have to know what those are, right? What are the things that that are outside of our control that influence what the safety net needs to be? And then we have to understand who benefits when when the safety net is what it should be? So in the case of employment, employers with very low income wage earners benefit a great deal from a strong safety net. And so as our solutions take into account not just the people who need help, but the people that benefit when that help is provided, it becomes stronger, it becomes more resilient, it becomes more popular, and those are all important aspects of what you're talking about when you say we need to understand our end game and exit strategy. Absolutely, and I think you hit on a really great point, right, is that we now we're 10 years out of the Great Recession and the unemployment rate is, is you know, all-time lows, pre-recession levels, and yet we're still serving historic highs of people, right? And I think that for us um, has been a little bit of a of a challenge to help to help people understand this sort of like change, right? Something has changed in our economy and something has changed about the way we work and our role in the provision of um, safety net programs or a safety net. Um, and that it just is not similar to when food banking started. It's not the same. It's not, not the same context as to when food banking started in the late 70s, early 80s. Exactly right. So, gentlemen, what I'd like to do is take a break here, and then let's, uh, let's pick this up on the other side of the break. And this is a topic that I think that we really want to dive into pretty deeply about how employment affects food security and our ability to create that across our states. He's David Lee. He is the executive director for Feeding Wisconsin. He's Jerry Brisson, the CEO for Gleaners Community Food Bank. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we'll be back in just a moment.
It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. Welcome back, everyone. It's Food for Thought. Jerry Brisson, David Lee, the Executive Director for Feeding Wisconsin. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're about to launch into a discussion about how employment, 37 years ago when President Reagan said the best social program is a job, and now there's a disconnect between being employed and being food secure. Now, here's one of the factors, fellas, that I want you guys to kind of, you know, peel the layers off this onion for the rest of us. CEO pay is quickly outpacing hours. In 2016, the CEOs of the top 350 U.S. firms earned an average of $15.6 million each. There are CEOs getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is what I'm... um, this is what I'm, I'm going to throw out here to you guys. According to the report from the Economic Policy Institute, the average CEO pay is 271 times the nearly $58,000 annual average pay of the typical American worker. Now, back in 1978, the CEO roughly earned 30 times what the worker's salary was. Today... It's 271. Now that's down from what it was in 2014 when it was 299 times what the average worker's pay was. So I, I, if the best social program is a job, I think we need another adjective in there. That the best social program is a job that pays a living wage. I'll throw that out to you too. Uh, and dead silence for us both. Thanks, Phil. Uh, all right, I'll start. I'll start. I'll start. Who's going to jump way. on the grenade on this one? Yeah, right. I'll start this way and maybe save you the damage. So, so first of all, whenever you take data points, any data points, I don't care what they are, and you start looking at them on their own, the likelihood is to start drawing conclusion just based on those points. So I'm going to be a little bit careful not to do that. And I am going to say that when it comes to CEO pay, the pressure that the people making those decisions feel is they need the best people to drive whatever their business goals are. And they're going to pay whatever it takes to get those people. And that's where that decision is being made. So that decision generally isn't being made in comparison to what other people make or comparison to what it used to be. It's being made in the context of we need to get the best people we can get to drive the goals of our business, whatever those goals are. Now, are the people making those decisions smart enough to do that? Well, that's a whole nother aspect of the conversation, right? Who runs boards of directors and who is responsible for being at the table when those decisions are made? But fundamentally, it's not being made with the idea that it's comparable to anything except, am I getting the best person I can get to do the job that needs to be done? So what you're saying is that CEO compensation is what the market will bear. Or at least it's a good chunk of how it's talked about by the people that make those decisions. So now you start to get into, well, why do you need government regulation? And I know that can be a four-letter word. (laughs) And so we want to be careful about how regulation both stimulates and suppresses the economy, right? So if we said CEOs should only make 10 times what the average employee of their company make, 
What is the impact of that kind of decision, which is what some people would recommend, that there should be some regulation that that guides corporations or any business around their, what their CEO should be allowed to make. And so I'm only saying that to, to add a, a broader sort of context around the kinds of things that happen and what you're really talking about when you start looking at those kinds of um, data points. So having said that, the other question that I would throw at it is, is there enough money to pay the CEOs what they make and the employees what they need to make and still have a successful business? Because that's ultimately where we need to be if we're going to want a living wage. We have to answer the question that there's enough money to do both. And if there isn't enough money to do both, then what do we have to do as a society to absorb the consequences of there's not enough money to do both. Now, again, I'm just throwing that context out there to say it, it shaping this conversation has to include a pretty broad set of ideas before you can start to drive solutions. So with that, David, I'll throw it to you and get your thoughts. Yeah, so I, I think your last point there, Jerry, was, was sort of where I was going with, with this, right, is that in, inherent in that setup, I think there is a bit of a false premise that somehow pay at the top immediately or directly correlates with low pay at the bottom. I think there is some certainly offloading of risks that we've um, that we've seen right in in um, in broadly speaking uh, some of our some of the, uh, the the business community where you know with the rise of the gig economy people are getting more flexibility freedom to to sort of do work at their own pace and rate, but they're also, they don't have any of the protections of, you know, potentially working for a larger company. So I think there's some of that stuff happening. But I think more deeply than that, right, is the sense that, like, we can do all of these things, to your point, Jerry. We can we can ensure that um, folks are getting paid what they're worth. Um, and I think underlying this is this other question that, that I'm really interested in, in in sort of what we value as a society, right? Um, I think it's interesting that for CEOs whose main jobs are to create value for shareholders, they are getting paid what the market will bear, right? We talked a little bit about that. But then for like a home healthcare worker who is taking care of our grandparents or potentially, you know, childcare workers who are taking care of our kids or teachers who are teaching our kids, they're getting paid close to poverty wages, right? That's an interesting problem for us. And I think that actually says a little bit more about how society values these jobs and these professions and the value they create, right? I mean, when you think again about CEOs creating value for shareholders, I think we can all agree that that, you know, people find that very important, which is why they get paid what they get paid. But I'm more interested to understand why is it that a home healthcare worker gets paid $23,000 a year with unstable um, scheduling. Um, this is backbreaking work, right? Or, or even like farmers, right? My father-in-law is a is a farmer, and up until very recently, he was a dairy farmer. He didn't make more than thirty thousand dollars in a good year. You know, he had six kids to raise. Why is it that the folks doing the most valuable work for society are getting paid the least? And I think that's a question for society to sort of wrestle with, right? I don't think. I, I think that's a that. That's something that we have to sort of figure out together. Um, and 
I think it's a conversation that, that we ought to we ought to continue to to have because that's really the, the the challenge, right? Is that you have folks doing really hard work every day in local communities throughout the state and throughout the nation. They're not getting paid enough, and then they're also being told they're lazy because they're on government assistance or other benefits, and that just seems a little bit that seems a little wrong to me. No, well, it's logically inconsistent, is what it is. And so here, you know, what it, when I look at it like this, so we've we've got all these new um, legislation that is enacting work requirements on people who are trapped in poverty. Okay, work is good. Work is a great value, and every able-bodied person that can work should work. We've that's been a value that has been consistent in food banking since its inception. So that said. We, what work requirements really are trying to accomplish is accountability. We don't want people to get something for nothing. But at the same time, we're willing to give specific tax breaks to companies with no accountability on how they're going to use that money instead of paying the government. And in this last round, we had lots of great companies that took that money and invested it in their employees and said, here's a profit sharing, here's $1,000 for every employee, because we don't have to pay these taxes, we want to give this money and share it down and make life better for you, the employee. But then you had other companies who took that tax break money and went back out into the market and bought the outstanding shares that were in the market. And they didn't do anything for their employees. So on one hand, you've got legislation that's trying to incorporate accountability into the poor's life. And on the other side, you've got legislation that's not allowing accountability to be held, but everybody gets to benefit and we celebrate one group and we disdain the other. I'll give you the last word, Jerry. <laughs> well, <clears throat> these are these are really critical topics in how we balance all of the things we want as a community. And I think, David, your point uh, is really well heard, and that is we decide what we value. Ultimately, how we act and what we decide to do is what communicates our values. And I think asking that question is the right question. If if we know and and as a as a, you know, parent of four children and having had aging grandparents and parents in hospice and some of those other things where home health care workers were needed, I know very deeply the value teachers and child care workers and home health care workers have on certainly my life and I assume then by extension, on anybody's life who needs them. So if I can only afford what I can afford to pay for that, and the businesses who employ those people can only charge me so much, then where does the rest of the money come from to um, demonstrate the real value of that worker? And that's a complex question but I think it's the right kind of question to face if we're going to really deal with this issue of poverty and jobs and how do we get to that end game. Well, the poverty, jobs, and you use the term a lot on the show, work supports. Right. So I want you two to pick that up on the next segment here. David, I hope you're willing to stay with us and you're having a little bit of fun anyway. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. So, all right. Well, David's committed to stay with us again. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, we'll be back on Food for Thought in just a moment.
You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Hi, we're back. Food for Thought, Jerry Basson, Dr. Phil Knight with our guest, David Lee, who is the Executive Director for Feeding Wisconsin. And uh, we are all part of a national network called Feeding America. And uh, I, I guess it's pretty cool that we can just call across the lake, David, and uh, have this conversation with you and, and, you know, and understand that we're all working toward the same goal. How do we create food security for our people in our states and understanding that it is vastly different than trying to solve hunger? Uh, you know, if you're going to solve hunger, it takes food, right? But if you're going to create food security, you have to have these type of difficult conversations and flesh this, these things out because they all impact people's ability to support themselves and become self-sufficient. Yeah, I'm going to throw out um, the five principles why we think this can be solved, because I think it's going to roll back into this whole conversation. Uh, and these are just real quick. Enough people want to see it ended. Food is plentiful, and we know how to get it from here to there. It's cheaper to end hunger than to have it continue. We can prove the impact of solving it, and we can build success step-by-step until it's solved. So part of building step-by-step until it's solved is grappling with difficult things that we haven't grappled with before. And fundamentally, I believe this problem can be solved because we're smarter than we used to be, and we actually are going to put our mind to what it's going to take to solve it. So even talking about an issue like the dichotomy between what CEOs get paid and laborers get paid, the challenge of understanding how we value low-wage workers and how we communicate their value rather than communicating their lack of value, whether that's laziness or whether that's, you know, even lack of education or lack of... We we often talk about low-wage earners in terms of what they lack rather than in terms of these are people worth investing in because they have so much to give back. And I do And ultimately they're just like us, right? I mean they are extremely resilient. They are I have I I, I don't know about you Jerry, but for me traveling around the state meeting folks across the state who are visiting our food pantries or who are, you know, on the SNAP program or thinking about applying for the SNAP program, I haven't met one person who's not either caring for a loved one, caring for children, um, working two jobs or maybe three, um, or otherwise disabled, right? These are folks whose life circumstances have made them, have sort of presented them with incredible challenges that they face every day. Um, and actually, while I was up north a couple of years ago, um, you know, up in the, uh, the UP, up by, up by the border, I learned about the, the, the concept of Sisu, the 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 sort of uh, Finnish Scandinavian concept that sort of talks about stoic determination and like guts in the face of adversity and that sort of being a barrier for people to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks are, you know, potentially who could avail themselves of whether it's our programs or federal nutrition programs, they just sort of like sort of grit and bear it because that's what they do. Um, and I think there's something about that, that part of the story that we never tell, right? We only talk about the folks, the very small amount of folks who are, um, who sort of fall into that sort of a classic welfare boogie person, right? Boogeyman. And, you know, when you think about the folks who are actually living in poverty, the folks living who are, who we would consider quote unquote poor, only 2%, 
right? Only 2% of all the people who are poor fall into the category of, you know, who are not either working, not either a full-time student, not elderly, blind, or disabled, or not a child. Right. The, the actual numbers are so small. Yeah, we ran through the numbers a couple shows ago, and I agree with you 100%. It's something we need to communicate more and certainly feel like part of explaining why we think the problem is solvable is because when you look at the numbers, they really are encouraging in certain ways that people have they're doing a lot. They can do a lot. And if we make systems that support them well, they will be successful. Oh, that, Absolutely. No I, I've always said that. I'm sorry. I was just no, going to say go that ahead, I, I've always said it's sort of a, a, a bit of a, a dim view on humanity, right? Or, or, or society or your friends and neighbors that you think that they don't have some sort of, that they're not driven by the same purpose or the desire for work that we all are. Um, and again, I'll say it again, I haven't met a person in all of my travels across the state who doesn't want that, but that life has sort of given them, you know, a a couple curveballs that have been hard to hit. Well, let me get you to to react to, um, I feel, I just love playing the instigator here. <laughs> so, you know, um, Dave, you posted a, uh, an article not long ago uh, from the New York Times that said simply that Americans want to believe that a job is enough to lift people out of poverty. And we've quoted President Reagan numerous times here on the show that the best social program is a job. But we know that in this day and age, it's not quite enough. So what else do we have to add to it? Yeah, so I think there's the idea, right? Our motto in Wisconsin is a good-paying job is the best anti-hunger tool, right? It's sort of a riff off of the, the, the Reagan quote. But, it's, but it is a good-paying job. I'd say a good-paying job with benefits right, is the best anti-hunger tool. I think, you know, when those good-paying jobs may not be available or the folks in communities may not have the skills or may not have the ability to access these good-paying jobs, right, I think – that's where either government or charity has to come in with some work supports to help folks um, to help folks maintain a a reasonable um, a middle a reasonable standard of living. Um, you know, I think in some of the communities, I don't know what it's like in Michigan, but over by us, like you have rural folks who are either old and not going to move, right? They're not working, right? Any the folks sort of north of our state, they're either older or they are not going to return to the workforce, or many of them are farmers and they're, they've been there for generations, or the folks who have left or who could leave for jobs, they've already left already. And a lot of these places are going to be, um, they are experiencing the negative impacts of this sort of increasingly connected and, and globalized economy. And I think how we sort of ensure that there are some supports to help them have um and also actually not to have supports to help them but also engage them in the development of what they need in order to live the lives they want to live right i think there's that's also the other part right of of the of the conversation i'm not sure this is a this is a a lower shelf cookie or not but the fact that we often do programming either with the government or or through charity where we sort of swoop in there and do something and sort of expect people to be happy or, or be thankful. I think that's, that's sort of a, an, another sort of fallacy, right, of this whole situation is that we have to actually engage folks who have been disconnected, whether it's in rural areas or in deeply, deeply urban areas, 
we have to engage them to ensure that their voices are heard in the process and the programming process to ensure that um, the solutions are co-created with them, right? Because that's how you make sure, that's how you ensure the, the highest um the highest possibility of success. Effectiveness, that's exactly right. Um, I think the other thing I would add to the work supports conversation is simply this. It it always, we, we frame this often from the standpoint of what the people who are getting the work supports are getting. But I think we need to add to that framing what the people, the other people that benefit from it, the companies that can't afford to pay the wages, right? Or at least are claiming they can't afford to pay the wages. I mean, if there's work supports for their employees, those companies benefit, right? And if you think about it's not, it's certainly small business, uh, but it's also, you know, very large companies that have very low skilled jobs that are saying we can only afford to pay this much to compete, whether it's because of the global the global economy or whatever reason. So, OK, then we as a society have to examine that, understand it, break it down, challenge it and then say, OK, so you're benefiting from these government programs business, whoever you are, let's let's make sure you understand how you're benefiting from that and how that's advancing society or not. And I think those conversations don't happen near often enough, but I think having them is going to drive more success. So this has been really good, and I think that we have scratched the surface here. And I want us to go deeper, but we're out of time. <laughs> so we're going to have to have David back. If you're willing to take this risk again with us, David, we'd love to have you back on Food for Thought in coming weeks. Would love it, and maybe I can even take the boat. Yeah, the oh, yeah. There we go. that'd be awesome. Come on over and, um, and come to the Fisher Building here in downtown Detroit. And uh, be with our guest in the studio. David Lee, the Executive Director for Feeding Wisconsin, thank you so much for being with us on Food for Thought and adding your thoughts to this great conversation. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. We're back on Food for Thought. Jerry, that was David Lee from uh, Feeding Wisconsin and obviously a very uh, good thinker, intellectual, uh, but yet has the ability to apply that at the ground level. Well, David's doing great work and, you know, uh, after, you know, conference sessions, sitting down with David and just expanding on some of the things we talked about today and, and you know, really taking seriously the challenges that we're facing and being unafraid of whatever those answers might be. It's one of the things I admire about David and, and his work is that he really does try to push the envelope, not for the sake of instigating or polarizing, but for the sake of truly understanding what we're grappling with, breaking that down and coming up with answers. And, uh, and he's good at it. He's great to talk to about it. And it's really a pleasure talking with him. So, um, which part of that conversation do you 
are you glad that was that was presented in the in, during the show? Well, there's lots of it that I'm glad was presented, but I think grappling with the fact that we need work supports connected with jobs at least in the, for the time being, as we understand better the economic pressures that create our reality today, and understanding that demonstrating value is a key part of what the safety net should be doing for the people that we're serving. Those are really important ideas to me. I agree. Great thoughts, Jerry. Thanks, as always, for your thought leadership. I guess it's time for a little food for thought. We Westerners value truth over all else. And the truth, while oftentimes difficult to find, discern, hear, face, and understand, is always true. It is, by its nature, logically consistent. Soren Kierkegaard said, The truth is a snare. You cannot have it without being caught. You cannot have the truth in such a way that you catch it, but only in such a way that it catches you. When our politics, policies, and philosophy are logically consistent, they will be applicable to all of us. This is our goal, and we will work to create positive solutions that allow everyone the opportunity to be who they can be and who they want to be. Thanks for listening, and if you missed any of our shows, you can find them at foodsecuremichigan.org. If you're on Twitter, follow me at DrPhil14. And until next week, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.